Many artists have been struggling throughout the pandemic. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. We sat down with five people who were part of the CETA program in New York City. CETA stands for the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act. It was in effect between 1974 and 1980, and employed more than 10,000 artists across the country during what was a challenging economic time. My name is Rochelle Slovin, and um, I had the great pleasure of being the director of the Cultural Council Foundation CETA Artists Project from 1977 uh, to 1981. And uh, before that, I worked for the city of New York, uh, which helped a lot with the CETA project because I knew most of the elected officials then in office. And after that, I uh, founded the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, uh, which I led for uh, 30 years as its director. And I've been retired for the past 10 years. <laughs> My name is Meryl Meisler, and I was a photographer, a CETA photographer, for the American Jewish Congress, 1978 and 79. And I documented Jewish New York. And uh, part of my duties was as a public service, I volunteered to teach children and, and homebound adults. And after CETA, this, the job training worked out. I became a New York City public school teacher, teaching art and photography, and worked there for 31 years. <laughs> and I too, I retired 10 years ago as well, Rochelle, focusing on my own artwork. My name is Larry Rasiopo. I'm a photographer. And one of the first good things that happened to me in photography was being chosen for the CETA Artist Project. I'm Virginia Maximowitz. I'm a sculptor. And I was a visual artist on the Cultural Council Foundation CETA Artist Project in 1978 and 79. And uh, like Merrill, after CETA ended, um, I started in an academic career. I went right into a visiting position at Oberlin College and uh, followed a few other visiting positions, ended up at Franklin and Marshall College as a sculpture professor, and I retired three years ago. I'm Blaise Tobia. Uh, I've been married to Virginia since 1974. So we've had a lot of uh, life experiences in common, one of which was the Seed Artist Project. We were one of the few couples actually hired for that project. I had the special treat of being on the documentation unit of the project for a year in 1978. So I got to travel all over the city, seeing what artists were doing, visiting their studios, uh, going to events and shows and, and so forth. I also went on to uh, eventually get a, an academic job at Drexel University, where I taught for 32 years before retiring a few years ago. So let's go back to the 1970s. Larry will set the scene for what life was like as a photographer in New York City. My family were Italian-American immigrants, and uh, my father and my uncles all worked on the docks in Brooklyn. So I had no art background, no idea of art, but somehow I picked up a camera and I really liked it. And I found it made me feel like more alive, more alert. And I decided I wanted to be a photographer. There's absolutely no background, no plan, no idea how to go about it really. But back then, as, as bad as New York was, there's, a lot, there's been a lot written about the mid 70s to mid 80s as the most incredible creative time in New York. And that things were cheap. They might be bad, but if you went somewhere and knew how to behave 
and how to conduct yourself, you can do a lot of things for extremely low money. Things are almost, you know, practically free and rents were low. So one of the things for me was that I got my first apartment and I was paying um, $125 a month rent for floor through on the edge of Park Slope. My parents who were paying $50 for the same size apartment thought it was highway robbery. But to me, I knew it was a good deal. And that let me work a little bit. I never really ever made much money as a photographer. And, but I would drive a cab, do odd jobs, do moving jobs. This was like in the old days, you can actually go to a place and shape up. You go to a warehouse and say, do you need people today? And stand around, they, may, they might or might not hire you. And it was all kind of like a cash economy. But you, you could get by because the rents were low. And if things would be, I could drive a cab two, maybe three days a week and yet pay my expenses and live. But you had no health insurance, no, no security. It was all like, as long as you don't get hurt and things go well. But many people that I knew lived that way. So it wasn't that strange. And not many of them were artists. Virginia and Blaze also have memories of beginning their careers as broke artists. Blaze and I both come from working class families. And uh, our parents were a little confused that we wanted to become artists. Uh, we did undergraduate at Brooklyn College, City University of New York, which at that time had no tuition. And then we both, we met as undergraduates, and then we both won full scholarships to UC San Diego for grad school. And we had just moved home to New York in 1977 pretty much broke. We moved in with Blaze's parents, uh, trying to figure out how we were going to make a living. And um, I had some secretarial skills. So, you know, I was getting odd jobs here and there typing. Um, but like Larry said, I mean, that I think one of the biggest differences, New York was essentially bankrupt at the time. So that meant real estate values had fallen and space was affordable. All right. But to use a, a newly minted term, we were definitely boomerang uh, children <laughs> crammed into my parents' house out in uh, Canarsie in Brooklyn. So uh, really just waiting for something to happen when the uh, knowledge of the CETA program came along and we both applied to it. The Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, better known as CETA, was originally designed to train unskilled workers. Artists were not the original focal point, but the addition of Title VI to it allowed for the hiring of trained professionals in high unemployment fields, putting artists in the running. CETA funded the largest federal arts employment effort since the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, which ran from 1933 to 1942. CETA is lesser known than the WPA, which was implemented during the Great Depression. This is because it was implemented during a smaller economic crisis, a recession rather than a depression, and it was also run on more local levels. Rather than employing people on a national level, CETA used federal funds to carry out state and local projects. Rochelle explains how CETA was a more targeted program for states and local communities, how it was run, and some of the issues that arose when it was implemented. I want to uh, step back just a second and say that the way that CETA was structured is that it was administered by municipalities and counties. And there were many, many instances in which the, these, the use of these funds was questioned by the local communities. There was a lot of hostility from the very beginning towards CETA, and there were a number of, let's call them, scandals. I don't know how scandalous these scandals really were, 
but some of these counties and municipalities, most of them, use these funds for park cleanups and that sort of thing. That's what it was intended for, actually. The idea of using these funds for artists was unique to these several, very few at the time, actually, and actually very few in the final analysis also, counties and municipalities that had a important uh, creative base uh, of artists, but more important, creative administrators who conceived of the idea of using these funds, which nobody who passed this legislation ever dreamed were going to be used for artists, for artists. In fact, during the Carter years, um, which is part of the time that our project was running, uh, Joan Mondale, the, the wife of the vice president, Walter Mondale, uh, took an interest in the project. And uh, one of her very important advanced people was a, a woman named Deborah Sale. And Deborah had a special interest in the arts and brought the CETA project to the attention of Joan Mondale, who actually visited our project. But it definitely helped us, at least in the um, Cultural Council Foundation project, uh, to advance our goals and to ensure that, because each year we had to reapply to the New York City Department of Employment. It was an extremely complex process that they put us through every, every year of the, uh, of the period, which was from, as I said, 77 to 81, that the project was operational. So uh, we really had to prove that we were doing several things. One is, employing people who otherwise were unemployed. unemployed. Two, um, making sure that uh, uh, underserved individuals, minority individuals, handicapped individuals, veterans uh, were all represented in this project. And uh, th those uh, administrative aspects uh, proved to be extremely vital in terms of the success of the project because the range of persons who became part of the program might not have been quite as diverse or quite as age diverse as they were consequent to the fact that we actually had to go through the New York City Department of Employment and to reapply every year for these funds. In New York, the Cultural Council Foundation, CCF, oversaw the largest project that put 300 artists to work. 200 other artists were employed in four concurrent projects run by the hospital audiences La Mama ETC, American Jewish Congress, and Theater for the Forgotten. There were also individual CETA positions for artists in New York. These positions were distributed by the borough president's offices. There were also seven subcontractors in New York for artists like dancers, musicians, actors, filmmakers, photographers, writers, and multimedia artists. Some of the institutions included the Brooklyn Philharmonia, the Association of Hispanic Arts, and the Black Theater Alliance. They had to be bona fide artists. They had to be qualified in their art form. And the way we ensured that they were qualified in their art form is that we had um, panels. At, we had an extremely detailed application, first of all. And then there were interviews and presentations of portfolios and auditions, depending on the discipline, uh, in front of each of these panels. 
in addition, we definitely did consider, I mean, there was a, and I, I, I'm not in the least bit embarrassed to use this term, an affirmative action um, aspect to this program. And it was very valuable and I think really, really important. And so we made it a, a, a point, a policy, a necessity to ensure that, that there was diversity in terms of the people who were getting these CETA jobs. Richard Nixon signed the federal CETA program into law in 1973. In 1976, after Jimmy Carter was elected, its budget peaked at around $12 billion. San Francisco was the first city to use CETA funds to hire artists a year after it was signed into law. Artists hired by CETA earned a salary of $10,000 a year with some benefits. Artists were expected to work on community projects for four days a week and on their own self-initiated projects one day a week. On a national level, CETA employed roughly 10,000 artists in places like San Francisco and Chicago, as well as smaller towns across the country. Here's Virginia. To give it, you know, kind of the national context, at least 10,000 artists were employed under CETA. And what were the parameters? I don't have the exact number in, in terms of how little money you could have made, but you, you had to be low income. Artists were hired basically under two sections of CETA. CETA had these different sections that they called titles. And most artists were hired under two, well, six, but title two and title six. And they all had slightly different rules you know, some were uh, definitely community placements, other ones were a little looser. So they, they were sort of a range of, of um, how artists could be hired. But this was not a program for hiring artists. This was a jobs program for everybody. It's just that artists, we well, thanks to John Kreidler, <laughs> figured out how artists as workers could be hired. And then there's another part of CETA that we learned during our research, we knew a little bit about it, but after talking to John Kreidler, apparently up to 10,000 additional arts workers were hired. So for example, many institutions got museum guards, theater techs, lighting designers, administrative help. And a lot of community arts organizations, as well as major museums, benefited greatly with these jobs. And as Rochelle said, because it was, it was very decentralized, federal money, the block grants to states who gave it to regions and municipalities, it's been almost impossible to research. There is no central archive anywhere. It doesn't exist. New York City required artists in the CETA program to engage in a specific number of classes, workshops, master classes, lectures and demonstrations, residencies and exhibitions, as well as the creation of new works, such as murals, dances and plays. Institutions like schools, museums, community centers and even the MTA could request one or more CETA artists to assist them. Following the first year of the program in the city, the Cultural Council Foundation, which oversaw the largest project, had accomplished more than double its contracted expectations. The next year, they were able to hire 25 more artists to their program. But Merrill says from her point of view, the program was not as diverse as it could have been. I would say that the program that I was in was not as diverse as you described. Reflecting on it, I'd say everyone was not, was Caucasian. 
and probably and I don't know religious wise, but um, but, they, but you know they hired poets and puppeteers and musicologists and actors and painters and and um, one of three photographers, and there was a diversity of ages, mostly younger, but I know there was definitely income. Uh, income requirements because at first I did was rejected and then I then I was accepted because somebody had their income was too high and so there was a cutoff level. Larry describes some of his experiences working in the program. The way I see it and I feel in many ways like the photographers there's always like a split use so if you're a dancer you either perform or you teach you wouldn't go to a dance company and you wouldn't do like PR work. So a lot of the not-for-profits wanted photographers to advance their mission, which was fine. So it was like an assignment where I would shoot something and they would say, we'd like you to shoot this, this, and this. And I would do that, but I always made the distinction, the same when I freelance, that that wasn't art. It could be, you want it to be as good as possible, but I really liked a project where I could do what I wanted. So some of the projects, like they had assignments for you to do, like, the, the first one, the Clinton Hill, they were rehabbing buildings. So they photographed their kids, their kids were cleaning parks. But then the part that I love is you walk around the neighborhood and photograph what you want. So I always work with that dichotomy. And so th- that was the stuff I did. And it was very similar to what I did in my, in my own neighborhood, where the stuff that was in Brooklyn before. So very much, it's a very simple street, black and white. And I really like doing that. It was the the healthcare and the uh, you know the steady work and the lack of pressure you have to run around. It took away all the all the anxiety. You know, you knew you had a steady paycheck. I didn't think it would be forever, but two years is a good time to get yourself grounded. I went on my first vacation in years. I actually went to the place in Maine, you know, left the city. I'd never I hadn't done that. So it was it had many, many benefits. And like like so many programs, it's the same way I felt about when I was a Vista volunteer. I got more out of it than I gave to the community I was serving. I have to say it was, I benefited more than I think I helped anyone. Larry also talks about the personal relationships made with other artists through the program and the impact that had. Well, the biggest thing was how nice it was to, to uh, ha- have work you know, come to you and half of it was really benefit you and the other half was just like work. So I did some freelancing always. And yet when you freelance, you have a chance to, if you see stuff that is more for you, where you can go back to. So photography is kind of like selective and a big part of photography is editing. So you might go to a place and shoot your assignment and pick a few real um, home runs that would also then serve as art. And a lot of them, like the great American directors like John Ford talked about stuff like this. They say, you get a script, not every script is an Oscar winner, is a classic. Not not everything is a searchers, but you make money, you hone your craft, you get better at what you do. You make connections, you meet people, and you keep just like like moving forward, building up. So at, at the time, I didn't know many photographers. I made a few friends, two, two or three friends I stayed in touch for years. And that was a big part. You know, so that, that was also the personal part. It was very nice. And also for me, I saw big work. So we had we had a few group shows. And I saw the, the like the you know five foot by five foot paintings and sculptures, and I started saying, "Well, I have to." I was only printing like eight by ten then. I have to start getting bigger paper, a bigger camera. I have to start making bigger prints. I saw the power of a big print in a space, and that gradually led me to to go to like a two and a quarter, and then up to a four by five inch negative. 
And the bigger the negative, the easier it is to make good big prints. So that was one definite influence. Today, many CETA projects are no longer visible in New York. Four murals in the PATH station at the World Trade Center were lost on 9-11. But you can see some of the work in the ceramic murals in the Clark Street subway station in Brooklyn. The New York City Municipal Archives are home to some of the historical materials from CETA. Merrill and Larry both say that CETA played important roles in their lives. In fact, that's why I'm here, because I met Larry, because I felt it was such an important part who I am and it was not spoken about and because I was in the CETA program and also reflecting on the 70s when you say I'm one of those people I was in like my early 20s I'm, I'm one of those people who's running around the discos at nights and the punk clubs and photographing the streets of you know homeless people and and you know buildings that were all sheltered up you know this is what I was photographing or living and CETA gave me the confidence to do something that I was actually trained in college to do. I, I had my degree in art education, but I was terrified to teach in New York City schools. I love New York City, but I was terrified to either teaching. So it actually gave me more experience being there than I did in my student teaching years. You know, it made me feel comfortable talking to estranged adults and children and work in building portfolios so it gave me the skills that made me employable for the rest of my life but it also did something more positive reinforcement your work was good enough i mean i remember applying for all the programs and but i was accepted by the american jewish congress and and i felt akin to the wpa and the federal arts projects photographers i felt in the lineage of dorothy lang it gave me not just money, but self-esteem that what, how I see and what I saw was important and historical. And I apply that to everything I was photographing, including going out at night. And that made it a tremendous difference to me as a human being and kept me involved in the arts for the rest of my life. May it be a long life. And, and I, and I was a, Always in every artist statement for every show and book that I've been in, I always mention it. And that's how I found some these people because it was like this little secret society that made such a difference in so many lives. I had been to a doctor in like about eight years. So it was really, I'd been to the emergency room twice. So it was really, it, it was a way of kind of like calming things down. And it was kind of like, I was there almost two and a half years. I was one of the last people to leave. And it was just very, really beneficial in that way. I was able to do a bunch of different things and have the time. And, and one of the interesting things about the program built into it, and for the photographers, we were often assigned to community groups. And sometimes they were ready for photog they were ready and needed a photographer. Sometimes they really didn't. I got my first assignment was to a theater company and they weren't really ready. So I photographed a few times a week and I helped them build one of the sets for the play because I knew carpentry. And the woman was happy to have me and she saw a sign for more hours than you work, just we want to have you. And that gave me more free time. So these weren't on the scandal level, but there were some loose ends within the program. You know, it was, it was very distended and um, kind of freewheeling in a way. So for me, it was a chance to just do more photography. And it took away the, the tremendous pressure of having, of having where I earned the money. You know, so that was really nice. And, but built into the program, 
was even if you're assigned to a community group, you have one day a week you're supposed to work in your studio if you're a painter and or go out and photograph. So it was built in, you were paid for artwork. Like, well, almost like with no condition. Like if you, if you get a, a major grant, there's no condition. A lot of the smaller grants, you have to do this, produce this, account for this. And this, it was, it was just a, the first real feedback I got that I was a decent photographer. And we, I went through a portfolio review. And the scary thing was the financial thing. Because I was just on the cusp of this, whatever the money amount was that we were told, you got to go to the Department of Employment, bring in your receipts. And there were a few people who were accepted and at the last minute were rejected. There were maybe $100 over the um, amount. And they were crushed because they were really counting on it. And it's a similar thing with now New York City, the housing lottery. You apply for a house, you go through all these, you jump through all these hoops, you have chosen one out of many thousand, you go through several interviews, and it turns out, uh, if you're a freelancer, you may have done one assignment too many, and you're ineligible for this great deal. So there was some heartbreak involved if you talk to people. You know, and we went to, we had a three-day, the uh, training sessions were at the FIT, and I met all these people. I was kind of isolated living in Brooklyn and not being an academic. So I met all these people, all, all kinds of different people. I found the letter, which would be interesting, we found in the department records, where someone on your staff, I don't think it was you, was asking some restaurant to donate food for breakfast. That you That's had a low budget, and we weren't, we're going to have a meal, you know, and everything. And it was like, so you come from Brooklyn, go to FIT, and you see like 500 other artists. It was, it was very, very exciting, to say the least. Our guests say the implementation of programs like the WPA and CETA can be looked at as examples for today. The pandemic has left artists struggling, and Maryland Blaze argue that CETA can be used as a model to create something similar. I think it's already a roadmap that's, uh, that they, they can follow. It was obviously, we all felt it was very successful for a minimum amount of, uh, in, a minimum amount of money, if you really think about it. And that it, it it helps people. I mean, I think I I served all five boroughs and ages from people in nursing homes, you know, to hospitals as a homebound and little children all the way through. And it's it's there. You know, we it's, it's there's public works to be made. There are empty storefronts. There are we have to learn how to resurge back into entertainment again and I didn't you don't realize that something you did that it, the, the city changes so quickly that just the, just the photographers in this group we we recorded a period of New York City like nobody else did we really think that the CETA model just needs to be kept in mind right people think about the WPA they think about about the funding through granting of the NEA uh, but we think in many ways what CETA did is a much solider, more sustainable, you know, method of doing things if we ever turn back to thinking about those things. So we want to be sure people are fully informed uh, for if and when they begin to think about a longer term solution. Many of those who worked on the Cultural Council Foundation project from 1978 to 1980 went on to have successful careers in their respected art fields. But by 1980, CETA funds began to disappear. Again, Rochelle, Merrill, Larry, Virginia, and Blaze want to raise awareness about CETA because they see it as a possible model to help artists today. 
You can find out more at cita-arts.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Matty Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>